0: Welcome to Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here, and we have been wandering through uh, the book of Revelation together this fall. We're about two-thirds of the way through. Uh, We're calling this series Reframing Reality because we don't believe that Revelation was written in its original context to be something that thousands of years later would be used by the church to be some kind of end times decoder book. No, we believe that Revelation was written to a people and they needed what Revelation showed them. What Revelation showed them is what it shows us and it's shown the church for, for millennium is it shows the reader, it shows the listener an apocalyptic vision of reality. Meaning it shows the reader, it shows the listener a version and a vision of reality that can only be seen from a heavenly perspective. We can't see it unless it is revealed and unless it is a revelation to us. So it's this gift to us to show us with all this crazy imagery and all these metaphors and all this symbolism of this is what reality is like. This is who Jesus actually is right now. This is how the world works. This this is what's going on in the heavenly realm that you can't see right now. And the Christian, the church, the world needs to see reality the way that the Lord sees reality. And that's what Revelation is. It's a revelation of Jesus, by Jesus, and all about Jesus who is the center of reality. So reframing reality, and we've been walking through Revelation, jumping through Revelation, to look at these themes of reality that we can't always see, but that Revelation wants to show us. And so some of the themes, the praise of Jesus, why is Jesus being worshiped right now? The power of Jesus, what kind of power does Jesus have in the world and what power will he come to display one day? Uh, the paradox of Jesus and how come he doesn't always make sense and all the, all these things that we looked at. And I want you to know I worked really hard to make an alliteration, all the realities that we will look at. Start with a P, okay? Worked really hard on that. Pastors need small wins. But th- this morning, we begin just a little study of the theme of the perpetrators. You're welcome. The perpetrators against Jesus. The enemies of Jesus in the world and in the realms that we don't always see. Who are the beings? Who are the entities that would, we would be shown that are waging war against Jesus and his, and his kingdom in the world? We don't always see them. We maybe have heard about them. But Revelation wants to not just show us who these perpetrators are. It wants to show us how they work and wants to show us uh, what their ultimate defeat will be. So we're looking at one this morning, technically speaking from about Revelation chapter 12 to Revelation chapter 19, there are three perpetrators against Jesus, three main ones. They're called the unholy trinity in Revelation study. We're gonna look at two and a half of them, okay? We're gonna look at one this morning and then one, maybe a half, next week, but these enemies of Jesus, the perpetrators against Jesus and his church and his kingdom and his bride in the world. So who are they and what do they do? So the first one is Revelation chapter 12, and it is a doozy. The woman and the dragon is this chapter title. We're going to read the whole chapter. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. It's a long chapter. It's an insane chapter. We're going to read it all together, okay? Sorry, I'm not sorry. Here we go. Revelation 12, starting in verse 1, is what John is shown about the first perpetrator against Jesus. And a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven behold, a great red dragon. With seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with an iron with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Verse seven, now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. <laughs> like, if you're not familiar, even if you grew up in the church, I don't care. Uh, I mean, I care, but like, this is a crazy chapter, especially if you grew up outside the church and you're like, "What this sounds like? What are What are you talking about?" And I just need to remind you that this is, we, we believe in, in the symbolic apocalyptic vision of Revelation, that this is trying to show us reality. And I know it might sound crazy to some of you, like you believe in what and the who, and, but would you lean in this morning and dare to believe that this is showing you something about reality that is more real than your five senses can tell. This scene is intense and there's a woman and there's a dragon and there's a child and there's a war, and just about every single commentator and scholar on this book of Revelation would tell you that Revelation chapter 12 is the theological center of the book of Revelation. It's not the crescendo moment necessarily, that's coming in a few weeks when we get to the end chapters, that what everything is kind of headed towards in history. But this is the, this is, this is the moment, this is the theological center because if you can kind of wrap your mind and your imagination around this chapter, you will begin to understand the reality of the cosmos that Revelation is trying to show you. Revelation is trying to show you reality, and this chapter encapsulates everything that you need to know about that reality. Here it is. There is a cosmic battle of cosmic proportions in the heavenly realms, and that battle has already been decisively won, but the enemy is still fighting. There is a cosmic battle of cosmic proportions in the heavenly realms, which means you don't always see it, you don't always know that it's going on. And that battle has already been decisively won, but the enemy is still fighting. So first, who is this woman? Well, this woman is kind of Old Testament Israel. She's represented to be that in the passage. She's kind of Mary, mother of Jesus, because she gives birth to a male child who is to be the ruler of the nations, Jesus. And then there's this child, who's Jesus. And then there's this war that ensues. Those are the main characters of this chapter. There's this war between all the parties, and so who is this woman? Um, this woman who represents kind of Old Testament Israel, kind of uh, Mary, Mother of Jesus, and she also kind of represents the church. She kind of represents all the people of God in all parts of history who wage war with this dragon. And Jesus says here to John, as he's being shown this vision, behold this. It's the most repeated command in the book of Revelation, look. Look at what you're looking at and take it in. Behold this, don't miss this. You need to take in this cosmic battle between the woman and her offspring, the church, the people of God, and this ancient dragon who is seeking to destroy her. Look at how he torments her. Look at how he attacks her. Look at how he seeks to destroy her and look at her victory over him. Take all this in, John. Don't miss this. So who is her enemy? The people of God on earth who are tortured and taunted and berated by this dragon. Who is he? Who is this perpetrator against Jesus and his people? Who is this dragon? Well, if you're a Bible nerd, Bible Project has a podcast right now, like a 13-part series they're doing on the Bible and the dragon. This is not the first time a dragon shows up in Scripture. Um, This is not the first time that, like, we're talked about this metaphor, this being, this dragon who represents all throughout Scripture the chaos of the anti-kingdom of God. The dragon is all all throughout scripture, especially in Revelation 12, but all over scripture, the dragon is trying to bring chaos to the world and to the people of God. Look at verse 9, who this dragon is and who this dragon has been since the beginning. Verse 9, and that great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. This dragon is the same as the serpent in the Garden of Eden. The dragon in this chapter is Satan. And here's what you're told about Satan six times over in this chapter. He has already been thrown down. He's already been defeated. That's not like he was tripped and he scraped his elbow. No, when it says he's been thrown down, and six times it tells you in this chapter that he's been thrown down, it also says in here multiple times he's been defeated. Satan has already been crushed, he's already been defeated. But here's what, here's the wake up call to the people of God. Yes, Satan has been defeated and there's nothing scarier than an enemy who already knows his defeat because he has nothing to lose. It's what it says in the chapter. He knows his time is short. He knows he's been defeated. So he's going to seek to make it hell on earth, literally for all the people of God until he knows his final defeat is coming. And here's what the ancient serpent does in the battle against God's people. This is kind of the the, the key moment for us to understand the dragon in this whole chapter. Verse 10, this dragon is Satan. He's already been defeated, but how does he seek to make it miserable and hell on earth for God's people? Verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, here it is, who accuses them day and night before our God. The dragon, the ancient serpent, the enemy of God, is also the accuser. This is the enemy's primary tool. This is the enemy's primary weapon. In the ancient battle between the dragon and the woman and all of her offspring, he seeks to accuse and condemn them. How often does he do this? Day and night. He attacks you when you're driving. He attacks you when you're talking. He attacks you when you're sleeping and dreaming. And what does he do? He accuses your conscience day and night that he might condemn you. He drags the people of God into the courtroom of their minds and into the courtroom of the cosmos, and he accuses them. This is actually what Satan's name means. Satan is a Hebrew word, satan. It means the accuser. This is Satan's primary identity. It's where his name comes from. We like to think of Satan as the guy with the pitchfork on our shoulder, tempting us with our favorite vices. But Satan is an accuser by nature. Isn't it fascinating that the very first enemy of the people of God in the Garden of Eden and then the very first enemy of God that we are introduced to in the book of Revelation, the first perpetrator against the kingdom of God that we're told about is this dragon. And this dragon's primary tactic, his primary scheme to get to his victory, to get to his goal of what he's seeking to do is to accuse God's people day and night. Does Satan tempt people? Yes. Does Satan want to bring chaos and destruction to the world? Yes. Does Satan want death and all of his friends to reign on earth? Yes. But the way that he wants to do that, the battle that he wants to win, the battle behind all those other battles of bringing chaos and death and destruction everywhere is to accuse God's people day and night. Because Satan knows if he can win that battle of accusing you and condemning you, if he can win that battle, he will win all the others. For the church and the offspring of the woman in this chapter to begin to understand that this is Satan's primary tactic should tell us something. Satan is not waiting around the corner with your favorite vice. He may be, I don't know. But that's not his primary goal. He tempts you that he might condemn you. That's why he tempts you, so that he can use what he tempts you into to accuse you and then tell you who you are because of it. Satan wants to tell you who you are. He is working overtime with his accusations to tell you not only that you are guilty of the sin that you have committed, but because you are guilty of that sin, you will be condemned. He wants to name you which is always what shame wants to do. Shame will always tell you a story and tell you a narrative of who you are. Guilt is the Holy Spirit conviction that you have done something wrong. And if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you should feel the guilt and the conviction of that. Shame is that you are something wrong. It's the belief that not just I've done something wrong with my hands and my mouth and my mind, it is the belief that I am something wrong because of those things. Shame is going after your identity and shame comes after the accusation from your enemy comes to say, look at what you've done and let me tell you who you are. He can accuse your conscience with the guilt and the shame of your sin, and in so doing, give you an identity. He wants you to believe that because of that identity, you are all alone and that you deserve to be all alone. And please don't miss this. The accuser, this is courtroom language. Satan is a great prosecutor. (laughs) Like Martin Luther's, the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther's mentor used to say to him when he would get so beat up on himself that he felt like Satan was winning against him, he would say, Martin, do not be so hard on yourself. Satan has had thousands of years of practice. Like he's really good at what he does. He's a really good attorney. He's a really good prosecutor, which means this, he studied you. He knows you. He knows your life. He knows what you've done. He knows what you've thought about. He knows what you've dreamt about. He knows what you fantasize over. And he knows exactly how to speak to you with, what you've, with things you have actually done, said, and thought with your life so that when he lays the evidence on the table, you go with him. How can I argue with this evidence? He's not making up things that, I've, that I haven't done to use them against me. He's using things that I've actually done And I can't argue with the evidence. Exhibit A through Z is all real stuff because he's good. He's not a bad lawyer that has to wipe blood on some sheet to try to prove that you did it. He brings in the Rolodex of your life and says, look at what the one on trial has done. And you can't defend yourself because you were there. And you go, yeah, I have done those things. He uses real facts about my real life that I cannot deny so that when he accuses me and not only tells me that I'm guilty, he wants to tell me who I am so that I can't disagree with it. And I so can't disagree with it. This is what the Bible says. Revelation 12 says the accuser accuses God's people day and night. First John three says that our own hearts condemn us, which means when Satan comes in and lays the evidence on the table, guess what my heart begins to do with the accuser? You're right. He's good, isn't he? (laughs) And now Satan can actually like leave the room if he needs to because my heart will do all the condemning for him. My own heart will condemn me because I can't argue with the evidence. So we become our own condemner. Satan names us. Satan disgraces us. And we kind of see what he's saying. (laughs) The shame that Satan hurls at us, we have a tough time defending ourselves against. We have indefensible actions from our life. We can't argue with him. Do you know that when shame fires in the brain, literally, like the place where shame fires in the brain, has direct access, like a direct line access to your long-term memory? So that when you feel ashamed of something or when you feel shame and you're driving down the road and man, why did that memory just come into my mind? Because he's making you feel ashamed with his accusations and then you don't even have to try. It's nanoseconds for the brain to go back to the filing cabinet of all that you've done, your long-term memory and confirm that you should be feeling the way that you're feeling. So he wants to hurl accusations at you and name you and disgrace you and maim you and tell you who you are. And then your brain is already doing the work for him, pulling the memories to the front to go, yeah, yeah, I I have done that. And I I can't argue with it because I was there. The memories are immediately accessed and we feel indefensible. So our own hearts condemn us. And here's how you'll know that Satan has been accusing you day and night. And here's how you'll know that your own heart has joined the judge and jury seat and begun to condemn you too. Here's how you'll know that you're living under the name that shame has given you. Remember, we're in a courtroom. He's the accuser. That one of the number one indicators that you are living against the assault of the enemy is by taking note of all the places in your life where you are trying to prove yourself. You're trying to prove yourself to your dad or your mom. You're trying to prove yourself to your spouse. Trying to prove yourself to your boss, your coach, your kids. The effort we spend trying to prove that we aren't what our accusations are saying about us. Most of all, we're trying to prove ourselves to ourselves. Shame has told me that I'm wildly unlovable wildly unworthy of being loved. Shame has given me a name and that name haunts me. And so I will do everything in my power to disprove the name that I've been given. I got to prove it. I have to prove it wrong. It's not true about me. So I will work and I will overwork and I will lose myself literally in trying to prove the dragon wrong. It's not true about me. Let me show you, let me show me that it's not true. I'm not unlovable. I'm not unworthy. Watch me prove to you how I am somebody. Watch me prove to you how I'm worth something. So I'll exhaust myself to prove to you and everybody else and myself that I am, in fact, worth something and I'm worth being loved. It actually becomes about survival. Like at the brain level, Shame fires off the prefrontal cortex, which is where fight, flight, or freeze goes in. Like you're, you're deciding I'm in danger and I have to survive. Shame fires that off because when you feel ashamed, it becomes about survival at the existential level. What if I am unworthy and what if I am unlovable? Then life isn't worth living anymore. So let me prove it wrong. Shame literally causes me to go into survival mode, like in my own conscience. I can't survive if this is true. Let me get busy proving that it's not true. I have to prove myself to live. If I'm unlovely and if I'm unlovable, if shame is right, I have nothing to live for anymore. So let me prove that I'm worth something. Let me prove that I'm worth loving. Let me prove that I'm worth not leaving. Let me prove that I bring value to the world. Let me prove that I'm not all the things that my shame is telling me that I am. And so every single exhausted, burnt out, obnoxious Christian is proof that the dragon is after you. And how do you think that the dragon keeps your treadmill going by saying you haven't proven it enough you haven't proven enough how do you think he keeps pouring gasoline on the prove yourself fire he accuses you day and night you will never do enough to prove enough to quiet the dragon because he's going to keep pulling things out that you've done said and thought and then you have to prove it again So if he accuses you day and night when you're awake and you're asleep, do you know how relentless Satan is in your dreams? And you wake up and you're ashamed of yourself for what was just in your mind. What do you think he's doing with that? Trying to tell you who you are. But shame's not done. Yes, he wants to exhaust you, have you to prove yourself. I'm not the things that my shame says I am. I'm gonna write a different story about myself. Shame doesn't want to just exhaust you and name you. Remember, The dragon is the enemy of Jesus and the enemy of Jesus' kingdom on earth. The dragon wants to use shame to literally, it's his first tactic to stop the kingdom from coming on earth. Which means the dragon wants to utterly destroy the world, not just you. So listen to how shame does that. Let's follow this logic. Let's follow how shame begins to destroy not just me, but destroy the world. Shame literally inside here dis. Integrates you disintegrates you it, it disintegrates your brain it disintegrates your mind we're like functional parts of your brain they're supposed to fire together brain will your brain in under shame will literally power parts of your brain down and disintegrate itself from like a functional sense like it can't function the way you're not going to be a whole self a whole human while shame is firing so it disintegrates you and it causes you in your disintegrated self to turn your brain away from itself. And then it's not done. And Kurt Thompson, soul of shame, is brilliant with this. Kurt Thompson would say, it doesn't just begin with your brain disintegrating from itself. It then turns you, not just away from itself, from yourself. It turns you away from other people. Like have you ever seen a little kid, I've got five of them. Have you ever seen a little kid experiencing deep shame? We could use adult examples of this too, but it's very visceral with children. And I've caused it in my kids. You, you snap, you say something, you crush, you come down on them and they begin experiencing shame. What does it, every child do? They turn their face away and they cover their heads. Like some of my toddlers will literally like bury their face in the carpet. I can't look at you right now. And you can go and you can pull them off the mat and say, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm, Daddy's so sorry. And, and they're gone. They won't let you see them because that's what shame is doing. It's turning them away from you. I can't let you see me because what if what my shame has told me is true? I am unlovely. I can't let you see me in this unlovely state. No one can get close to me. So we turn our gaze down in a way so that no, I can't see anyone seeing me. So here's what shame's doing. It's not just turning me away from me. It's turning me away from you. This is where shame wants to lead you. It begins with the separation of your own mind and then it separates you from all your friends and it wants to end you in the hell of utter isolation. And here's what it ends up sounding like. You will be all alone because no one could fully see you and still love you. So you can't get close to anybody. You can't be vulnerable with anybody because if they saw you, they would leave you. So you can't actually have any real community. You can't have any real friends. And who's telling you that? Shame fractures the mind, and then shame fractures the self, and then shame fractures all of our relationships. It disintegrates you, and then it disintegrates all your relationships. Separates the functions of the mind, and then it leads to isolation from each other, and it starts with me, and then my family, and then my marriage, and then my friendships, and then my community, and then my country. (laughs) Like... Nations are torn apart. And where does it start? When there's a fracturing of everything into utter and isolated chaos, and it isolates all the individual, individualism, where we are all just all on our own in the utter hell of utter isolation, that's shame's goal, to fracture everybody. So why do you think the dragon wants to use accusation as his first weapon, (laughs) because he can destroy the world with it. And and I'm not like, what's going on in the Gaza Strip right now? Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Like, Satan loves all of that, but he didn't start by just implanting the mind for those countries and those people groups to bomb each other. He's been after this for thousands of years, And we already start with the place where this this conflict started was with the accusation of all of God's people to turn them in on them against themselves and then against each other. This is where it all starts. Satan and the dragon would love to use accusation in like in the whispers of your 2 a.m. wake-up self to destroy a world. So how in the world could we ever believe a different story than the one that shame tells us about ourselves? How could we not let the accuser destroy us? Well, if you've been around since the beginning of our Revelation study, well done. But also, if you remember from chapter two and chapter three, we looked at this section of Revelation where Jesus comes to the seven churches that this letter was originally written to. And Jesus has words, he's got a letter to each church. And there's a phrase that comes up in each letter to each of the seven churches. And it's a little bit vague, but Jesus is rebuking and comforting and, and challenging all the churches that he's talking to. And some of them are facing apathy, and some of them are facing idolatry, and some of them are facing persecution. And he says to all of them, at the end of his letter to each of them, he says, but you must conquer, but you must overcome. Kind of go, okay, thanks, Jesus. That's a little vague. Not really sure how to overcome, but since chapter two and chapter three, every listener and all the original churches were going, how are we supposed to do that thing that you told us to do back in chapter two and chapter three? I know you got a lot of crazy vision for us, but tell us how to conquer. Tell us how to overcome. And that same word that Jesus uses to the seven churches has not been used, to conquer, to overcome, has not been used until Revelation chapter 12. Here's how the church might conquer their enemy. Here's how the church might overcome, same word, their enemy. The reader and the watcher has been dying to hear and here it is, verse 11. And they have conquered him. They have overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Two things that the churches have been waiting to hear since the revelation to them began. How do we conquer? How do we overcome this enemy of God? Two things, blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Other translations say the testimony of the saints. Blood of the lamb and the testimony of the saints. We conquer the enemy not by pleading what our hands have done. You can never do enough good to prove that you are not who your shame says that you are. We do not plead ourselves before the court system by pleading what our our hands have done. No, we plead what our God has done for us. And all throughout scripture, over and over and over and over again, the Bible would lead God's people to stand and face their accuser in the courtroom with the faith that the blood of Jesus speaks a greater word than my sin and my shame and my accuser are speaking against me. The blood of the lamb is your only defense. 1 John 3, our own hearts condemn us. Do you know how the rest of that verse goes? Though our own hearts condemn us, but God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. That's how that verse goes. Though our own hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Here's what that's saying. We're in a courtroom again in 1 John 3. And your own heart is condemning you in the courtroom, but God is greater than your own heart and he doesn't condemn you. And he knows everything, meaning he knows things that are sinful about you that you don't even know. He knows everything and he still doesn't condemn you because God is greater than your self-condemning heart. How? Because the blood of the lamb has already paid for all of your sin. The child of this vision, the child in this vision of Revelation 12, the son of this woman, who were told the dragon sought to kill the moment he was born. There's a nativity scene for you. It's not just like angels. Hallelujah. You know we're no. It's a dragon, the ancient serpent seeking to devour the baby in the manger. Merry Christmas, everyone. You have a dragon trying to kill baby Jesus. <laughs> Add that to your, you know, <laughs> little nativity set. <laughs> the child of this woman would grow up. Uh, and go on to not only live a sinless life, but he would go on to bear your sin so that you wouldn't have to. So sins that are covered by the blood of the lamb speak a greater word than your accuser speaks about you. Isaiah 53 would say that he has borne all of your iniquities himself. He takes them on himself so you don't carry them anymore. And Satan would love to use the facts of our sin, the reality of our real sin, and give us an identity of being condemned. And Jesus comes along and uses the facts about his real blood in the face of our real sin to give us the identity of being redeemed. Your sin is real, and Jesus' blood speaks a better word than your sin speaks. Martin Luther again, one of my favorite dead people, speaks about this in his, in his writings. He talks about that when Satan comes to you and hurls accusations at you because of your sin, you don't have to try and ignore his accusations, nor do you have to try and numb the accusations and act like they're not going on. You don't have to do any of that. You turn to your accuser, Luther would say, and you say, accuser, your accusations no longer destroy me. They actually build me up. Because yes, Satan, you are telling me that I'm a sinner and I'm telling you the blood of the lamb says that Jesus died for sinners. So you do not, you do not destroy me, Luther says. He says, you comfort me immeasurably with your accusations because every accusation you hurl at me, I throw at the feet of Jesus and here it is finished. So you don't get to do this anymore, Satan. Bring your accusations and I will stand behind the shield of the blood of the lamb and hear your arrows falling off of them you do not destroy me, you comfort me immeasurably, Luther said. So the blood of the lamb conquers the accuser by quieting his voice. He has nothing to say anymore. If he convinces you that you deserve to be abandoned and you deserve to be forgotten and you deserve to be unloved, you can say all those things were true until Jesus proved you wrong. Well may the accuser roar, the old hymn says. Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. You stand behind the shield of the blood of the lamb and the accuser can't name you anymore. He can't disintegrate you anymore. He can't convince you that you are unlovely because Jesus has shown you just how loved you are. Use the proof of the gospel, the proof of Jesus to hurl in the accuser's face to say, bring it on. I have done all of those things and it does not name me because Jesus has named me now. Which means, Christian, there's nothing to prove. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. (laughs) What is there to prove if you already know who you are? You don't have to prove anything to your spouse. You don't have to prove anything to your children. You don't have to prove anything to your parents. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. You already know who you are, so there's nothing to prove. And then the second thing we're given that we need in order to conquer the dragon, blood of the lamb, and then the word of their testimony or the testimony of the saints. We need to hear stories of people who have hidden themselves behind the blood of the lamb and found that it was enough for them. Because when we hear stories about that, guess what we'll dare to believe for our story? Maybe it could be enough for me too. And the war rages on. Did you hear how often Satan accuses day and night? So guess what we need constantly? We need to hear stories Real testimony, the testimony of the saints that says, I hid myself behind the fountain of his blood and it covered me. And my Satan could not come against me anymore with his accusations because Jesus defended me. When you hear testimonies like that, what do you think that's going to do your, to your confidence that this is all True. We need testimonies that are honest about people who have real sins and real fears and real brokenness. I don't have to pretend like the facts aren't true anymore. I don't have to downplay my sins and pretend that they're not that vile. I can own my sins and say to you, and every testimony can say to you, I am not an imaginary sinner with imaginary sins, and I don't have an imaginary savior either. He's real. And let me tell you my story of how his blood became real to me. Your brokenness is your testimony. You don't have to get over it or through it or done with it. And then you can share what God's done for you in Jesus. Your sin is your testimony because you've been covered by the blood of the lamb. It's been enough for you. We need testimonies of those who are weary with sorrow and sin, who are exhausted, who fail in their attempts to believe this and still stand on the blood of the lamb and say, and he carried me through that valley anyway. The blood of the lamb has quieted the accuser and we need testimonies of people, of saints who actually have experienced the accuser being quieted. We need testimonies to hear of the stories that the blood of the lamb has slayed their dragon. So we're gonna sing a song in a minute. And it's a song all about those who are weary with sin and sorrow. And could I possibly keep coming to this blood? Could I possibly keep coming to this Jesus? Or has it run out for me? Or could I keep fleeing to him in my shame? Is it possible that I could keep coming back to him? And then we're going to hear one of those testimonies. We're going to hear of someone who has lived in this valley and who is telling you the blood of the lamb has been enough for me. So let's pray and then we'll sing and we'll listen together. Jesus, We are accused day and night by our enemy and your enemy. And his voice uh, sounds a whole lot like our own. And so as we close in song, as, as we hear the accuser roar of sins that we have done, would you give us the confidence to believe that we know of them all and thousands more and God you know none. That we would stand behind and beneath and on the blood of Jesus that gives us a better name. That we would slay the dragon by hearing this testimony. Let's call this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well,
1: friends, we do get the opportunity uh, and just a great privilege to hear uh, from one of the uh, precious saints within our midst. We, as we were playing this service, uh, we didn't want to leave without hearing uh, a testimony from somebody um, that has kind of gone through it. Uh, And so this morning, you do get the privilege to hear from my friend Paige. Paige, if you'll make your way up. Um, She, for some reason, agreed to do this three times a day. (laughs) So uh, you're going to want to hire her after she's done. But um, I don't want to say anymore. Paige, you'll take it.
2: Thank you. Hi, I'm Paige Penitsky. I have been coming to Midtown for about a year and a half now, and I'm honored to be here um, sharing some of what the Lord has done in my heart and in my life. Some context that you will need for this story is that I was born with a vascular birthmark on my left arm, which means that more blood flows into my arm than is able to flow out. That causes my arm to swell and be kind of purple and be pretty painful. So I've had this my whole life. And when I was five and I had a purple arm, it was awesome because every little girl loves purple. And then as I moved into middle school and high school, everyone starts to want you to look the same. And I could never do that. And that created in me an anger because I felt isolated from the people around me. And so I turned to the Lord, I'm like, why would you do this? Why would you create me in a way that I'm so different from the people around me? And then people started saying really hurtful things. And again, this is like continuing this anger in my heart. Like, how could you allow people to say this like about something that you created? And then as I got older, the pain got worse which felt like a continual pour of gasoline on this fire because I would wake up every day and be in pain and think, like, God, there's, like, how can you allow this? Like, How can you cause this like seemingly purposeless pain in my life? And so this anger really took root in my heart, and I really did not want anything to do with the Lord. And well-meaning Christians would offer comforts like, well, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And I was like, that actually somehow feels worse because you're telling me like, so so like this is what God chose and like how I can't reconcile my, like what I have been taught about Jesus and my experience with him because I've been taught that he's kind and gracious and merciful and loving and I don't feel like I'm experiencing that. Like I feel like he has allowed all of this or created it, like whatever I was thinking in my high school mind and like, I can't, like, I don't want to love you because I cannot understand this. And so during this time, my parents, being the wonderful people that they are, continue to bring me to church. And one day while I was there, our pastor referenced a man who had a really painful disease. And when speaking about his disease, he said, I don't like it, but it was a tool that was chosen for me. And it felt like the Lord flipped on a light switch, but I still really wasn't sure what I was seeing. And so I flipped to the front of my Bible and I wrote that down. I began to pray like, Jesus, I do not believe this, but I want to, and so I need you to show me how my arm is a tool, because I don't see any purpose in it. And so as I began to pray this and come before Jesus, he began to show me that my arm is a tool and that it brings me to the feet of Jesus every single day, because I cannot handle the things that people say and then my thoughts about it and the pain without Jesus picking up those things and also picking up me. And so I feel like I was finally being able to walk in that and like starting to see the structure that the Lord is building in front of me. And during this time, I went to a worship night with a friend and the night of worship turned into people sharing how they had been physically healed. And so the pastor gets up on stage, grabs the mic and yells like, if you're in this room and you have not been healed, you just don't have enough faith. And it felt like the rug got ripped out from underneath the structure that I was finally being able to see like what the Lord was doing. And I felt all of the anger of my whole life like rushing back. And flashbacks to when I'm seven years old, like crying out to Jesus, like please just like when I open my eyes, let it be gone. And it never was. And so I'm like in this church, I'm like crying, I'm crying out to God in my heart. I'm like, Jesus, like you know that I believe that you can heal me and you won't. And like, I don't wanna love you because I don't understand this. And like, I can't get past this. And this is the one time in my life that I have physically felt the Lord. It felt like he put his hand on my shoulder and said, Paige, don't you see that I am not healing your arm, but I am healing your mind. And I'm healing the way that you see the situation and the way that you see me and know me. And so it became clear to me that I would not receive physical healing on earth. And so I began to pray and ask the Lord, like, teach me how to accept the healing that you're giving and to let go of the healing that I so deeply want. And the Lord has been incredibly faithful to teach me so many things. And there's a few that I would love to share today. First being that healing in the upside down kingdom does not look like what I pray for most of the time because it centers on my sanctification and on seeing more of Jesus. Healing, this kind of healing is not a one-time healing, but rather a continual refining and remaking until I am new and I am with him again. He can bring light to the darkest of places, places that I never thought would see light. And he has turned an anger that was so deep in my heart into a love for him He's even redeemed phrases like fearfully and wonderfully made as I see that those phrases mean that it's not my view of fearfully and wonderfully, but rather giving me reason to trust that he is sovereign and that I can trust him wholeheartedly. I cannot experience the fullness of the goodness of God without knowing how real and how present the darkness is. And though my arm is often a tool that the Lord uses for good, It is a reminder of the pain and the brokenness of the world, and I feel it. I feel the groaning for the Lord to come and to make things new. And while I wait, I have to trust in His goodness, even when His goodness feels like pain. And the pain gives me a reason to hold tightly to Jesus as He holds tightly to me with a love that will not let go. And finally, as I was praying about what to share today, I want to clearly communicate how much the Lord has done and how far He has brought me, but I don't want it to seem like I can tie a bow around what the Lord has done and is doing, because I can't, because I believe everything that I've just told you, and also there are a lot of days and seasons where I don't feel like I can walk in it. And on those days when I feel back at square one, I'm reminded of the continual work of Jesus in my heart and in all of our hearts as we lay these things before his feet and ask him to carry them and to carry us. Um, and so all of this just points to what the Lord is doing and that ultimately what we long for is to be with him and to be fully healed and to be made new. And so, That's cool. thank you. Thank wow. you.
1: Let's pray together and we're going to sing one more song. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful uh, for Paige, uh, for how you have loved her, uh, for how you've created her, how you have spoken to her. Uh, Lord, her trust in you um, is so encouraging, um, so inspiring. Uh, So Jesus, would you continue to uh, draw near to her as she draws near to you? Uh, Lord, would you keep her away from the evil one uh, who loves Vulnerability hangovers uh, like this um, to attack, and so would you? Would you protect her from the arrows uh, of the evil one, um, and just show her what she means to us? Uh, Lord, we're so thankful for uh, for you and for what you've done. That's uh, in your name we do pray. Amen.